Well, good morning again. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here, or the pastor here, I guess. Um, I should probably know that. But if uh, you're new here, I'd love a chance to get to meet you after the service, um, if, there's, if, that, if that time allows. I didn't say this earlier, but I also do wish um, you and your family a restful Memorial Day weekend, as our nation certainly and community uh, locally uh, remember and acknowledge those who have given their lives uh, to protect our freedoms this holiday season or holiday weekend, I guess. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Kings, and we are landing the plane with the David series, and no better place to land that plane than to read about Solomon, who will follow David, and that's what our text addresses in these final days before David dies. We'll be reading from 1 Kings 1. 28 to 37, and then over to chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you, by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne and in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. Verse 32. King David said, Call me Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, so they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. He shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. Then turning over to chapter 2, verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we look at your word and as we hear it read and now preach, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of this word. And by that, would you open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Would you change our hearts that they would receive this good word as a seed goes into good soil and produces a fruit 
that we too would, would leave here changed people. For your glory alone we pray. Amen. Well, I, I don't know how your morning started, um, but mine started as Ada had already left the house to come here to practice singing. Um, I get a call from her, and just all that's said on the other end of that call is, I've made a big mistake. And in like a fraction of a second, my mind goes through, you know, a couple of different scenarios. One, I remember her saying that she needed to get gas, you know, sometime in the morning. She knows, I think, are you out of gas? Am I going to come pick you up somewhere? Are you safe? Start, you know, going through that scenario. We, we did just have our anniversary on Friday. And so I think there's something, something bigger going on here that I don't know that we need to talk about. Thankfully, the words that followed were, I brought the wrong shoes. <laughs> and before I'm, you know, before I know it, I'm being quizzed on whether I know the difference between a wedge and a heel. So that's how my morning started. And, and, in, and in the right circumstances, right, all of us, have, some of us have probably been there. And, and, and that type of mistake, you know, can make some people wonder Will the kingdom of God survive this, right? Um, to be honest, I almost forgot the shoes as I was leaving the house, and whether the kingdom of God would survive this or not, we can talk about that later. I know I wouldn't um, if I had forgotten those shoes. The coronation of Solomon is where we will land the plane here for our series in the life of David. And what does Solomon's coronation mean? Well, one, it means there is a new king to follow King David. It means also um, that David's line will continue. But mostly, and, and perhaps more importantly, Solomon's coronation means that after everything that has happened, and that will continue to happen even, God's promises remain true. That he is still in control and that means that his kingdom continues in spite of all the chaos and all the wrongdoing we see in David's life as king. And I would extend that to forgetting the right, right pair of shoes as well. Everything in between. Nothing, nothing stops God's kingdom from moving forward. It doesn't matter how big the mistake is. It doesn't matter how deep the sin is. His kingdom moves forward, and this is what I want us to see as we end here with Solomon's coronation. And we'll look at two things, that God's, king, God's kingdom moves forward in spite of our sin, and it moves forward in spite of our brokenness. It moves forward in spite of our sin, and God's kingdom moves forward in spite of the brokenness in this world that is caused by our sin. So let's look at those two things as we try to close this series this morning. I'm starting with the greatest news first, and that is our sin and, and your sin, thankfully, doesn't prevent God's plans and his purposes from going forward. It just doesn't. That's one of the things that we believe here. There's no yin and yang, right? No balance in the force that we must be in tuned with. God's kingdom is a train, as it were, that has left the station. Nothing is stopping it. And really the only question that, that is asked of us as we go through the narratives of Scripture is, are you going to get on it? 
Are you going to get on it? Will you, in the sense of kingship, submit to the rightful king? That is the question in these final days of David's life. But let me say it again. Nothing stops God's kingdom from moving forward. Not your sin, and thankfully, not the sin of David or Israel. And this is good news. In fact, this is the best news for all of us this morning. But I would argue it's, it's hard to remember this, no matter how many times we've heard it, it's hard to remember this when our sin and the sin of others, what it matures, ripens, and does terrible things in this world. And we have seen this all throughout the David story, beginning with Saul, Israel's first king. Israel, Saul tried to kill David several times and then sends him into hiding in the wilderness. All throughout the David story, there has been little time where there hasn't been war or battle or bloodshed of some time in the context of David's life. It is going on all the time. We just spent three weeks looking at Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, where David becomes the central figure as one who has not done mighty things, but has sinned greatly. Yet, none of it stopped God's promises from going forward. But unfortunately, it's not like things get cleaned up from this point on. If you continue reading from chapter 13 on, it, it, it doesn't get prettier. We didn't look at the story of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom there in chapter 13 that carry over to chapter 18, but this is right after David's repentance. And we're met with this story where Amnon is the half-brother of Absalom. Both of them are David's sons. But Amnon is obsessed with Absalom's sister, Tamar. And, and right there in chapter 13, we read of a, of a horrible rape of Tamar. This then leads Absalom uh, out of revenge for his sister, Tamar, to kill Amnon two years later. This then leads David to shun Absalom, forcing him to flee to Geshur, where he lived excommunicated from his father for three years. Absalom then is allowed to return and come back, but he must not show himself in the presence of the king. This would be David, who has hardened his heart towards his son at this point. And this will lead Absalom to devise a plan then to take over his father's throne. And he'll do it for a bit, sending David again to the hills, to the wilderness. At some point they reconcile, and perhaps in the face of battle, that's, that, that, that's what brought them together. They go out to fight. David is told to stay back. He pleads with Joab and his mighty men to protect Absalom. There is a sense of repentance and reconciliation in their relationship, but it's not, it, I mean, it is enough, but it's on the heels of Absalom dying in battle, killed by Joab nonetheless. You can't, write, you can't make this stuff up. Joab's still angry that Absalom tried to take the kingdom from David, so it's his revenge, right? But then this leaves David brokenhearted again, crying out. The end of chapter 18, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, what I had died instead of you. And you know, after everything that Absalom had done to David, this is his response to his son. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. 
But you add this to the deception and lying that takes place with those who have known David the longest, and it's all just one big mess. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I, I, I do want to point out, this is your history. This is your story. It's your heritage. Not great. What we see in David and his kingdom and in his life comes to an end, as it comes to an end, is really sin begetting more and more sin. And the, the, there is very little righteousness to be seen in the pages that follow. And I imagine if you or I were living at this time amongst this quote-unquote golden age of Israel and God's people, we might be asking, where is Yahweh? Where is he in all of this mess? Because it seems that the sin of God's people is in control at this point and that nothing is going to stop it. But we must be reminded, as we have said all along, and this is a good opportunity to, to, to sort of remember how we read the Bible, that, that what the Bible is doing is it's not, not condoning activity. It is showing us conditions in which God, what, works his purposes out. These are the conditions in which he, his plans are moving forward, brought on by our sin and the, effect, and the effects of sin and all of its forms. Right? So nothing, nothing has been sanitized here for us, though we might like it. We excuse our children to not hear some of this stuff. Right? Sinful acts such as rape and murder and lying, deception, manipulation, and pride all create the conditions of a world that God works in. Conditions, however, that you and I are not unfamiliar with this morning. Conditions where marriages don't work out the way that they're supposed to, that don't stay together. Conditions where babies are not born, they're killed. Conditions where people are homeless. Conditions where people are abused and abusers seem to go unpunished. Conditions where 21 people this week, mostly 9 and 10-year-olds, guys, are shot to death in their own fourth-grade classroom in Uvalde, Texas. We are familiar with these conditions. And I would suggest that it's these conditions, right, that sin and all its forms that causes us to wonder, too, if God is really in control here. If he's still in charge, if his plans and his purposes are still on track, or will sin win out? This is much of how the David story ends. What is happening, but also what is going to happen are the questions that we are asking as we land the plane here. But it's also here that we experience one of the many paradoxes of Christianity. Right? God doesn't avoid these conditions. He actually does what? He enters those conditions. The same conditions that make us feel hopeless. He enters the very conditions that our sin and the sin of others creates in order to ensure that his plans and his purposes, his kingdom, moves forward. And while this doesn't stop us from the pain or sin or of our sin or the sin that, 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 that of others today, and certainly while it doesn't stop right, the families. And you, Valdi, Texas, from crying out, just as it didn't stop David from crying out, oh, my son Absalom, 
Oh, my son Absalom, right? Would I have died instead of you? It does answer the question of who is in control. And it does answer the question of what will happen. See, it's exactly why the Bible ends telling us what, of the promise of God's kingdom where he will dwell with his people. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and the former things have passed away. But that day, though it is coming, is not here yet. That's the tension we feel in this passage and it's the tension we feel today as we read these headlines. And it makes us wonder who's really in control. But the, the hope of this passage this morning that points us to the greater hope in Christ is, is, is in verse 34, long live King Solomon. It is Solomon's coronation that actually gives us hope even in the midst of their sin because it says God's promises are not being stopped. No matter how bad, or I should say even how good it gets, his kingdom moves forward and the same is true for us today. And the reason we can say that, as we've already alluded to, is because God will actually enter these horrific conditions. And he'll do it in Jesus Christ. Our true king who will walk among the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the gluttons and the greedy, the addicted and the moralistic, the dying and the dead, all the way to the cross where he actually becomes those conditions, as Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians 5, where he will become our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. But entering conditions, you know, it, it, that, that's just not enough. Someone must pay for those conditions, and that's what Jesus does. There's no hope for you, for me to tell you, hey, God feels your pain. He enters into that abuse. He enters into that injustice. He takes it on and makes it right. And what we are experiencing here, the same thing that we're experiencing in this transition from, from King David to King Solomon, is wanting that justice to be made right and pure upon Christ's return. That's where your anger is. That's where your hurt is. That's where that tension is. And what I want us to see as we leave this section is that, and I want to be careful how I say this, no matter how raw that feels at times in your life, that day's coming. Because nothing stops God's kingdom from moving on. What do I mean by God's kingdom, briefly? It's the place where God's rule is not only exercised, but its values of justice, order, and obedience are fully realized. Israel used the word shalom to talk about this. And we, we kind of know it as peace, but it's, it's more than that. It's peace in all aspects of life. Peace mentally, socially, economically, psychologically. It is returning to the garden in one sense. Today, though, while we have God's rule in Jesus Christ as he sits enthroned as king, we do not have everything in subjection to him yet. And that's what you're waiting on. 
In other words, his kingdom is not fully realized and it won't be until he returns. And while that allows for much of the conditions in this world that we experience brought on by our sin, the sins of others, it never ever means that God is not in control. We have to live in two worlds. You've probably heard that. And that's challenging. And living in a world where, where many people don't. And one of those feet has to sit in this place, right, where the dust wellows up and it gets on our face. But another foot has to sit right, in the new heavens in New York that God is promising, where he sits on his throne and he reigns. And in some hard and challenging way, God calls us then to communicate that hope and peace as we stand in both of those worlds. That's the call of the church. And part of that is remembering that no matter how bad it gets, your sin in particular, the sin of others around us, nothing is putting an end to what he is doing. And this is good news for us. And it's certainly good news even for those suffering in Uvalde, Texas. And this is the first point. I, I, don't, I don't want us to really get past this, to be honest with you. I don't want us to ever think that sin is winning out. Whether that might feel like that's happening in your own life or just in, in the world around you as you see people hurt other people. Yes, I, I don't have answers for all of it. I'm thankful for Scripture's account of it as well, that my conditions and David's conditions are pretty similar. But there's something uniquely hopeful that threads our story together with his and has everything to do with the promise of a king who is reigning and will reign. And though it's not Solomon, but it's Jesus, that is our hope as we sit in this place, two feet in, in two different worlds. But it's not just our sin that, 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 that we can be sure of that will not prohibit God's kingdom from moving forward. It's also uh, what I like to call the brokenness of, of this world, the brokenness that our sin creates in, in, in a world where it just doesn't function as it's supposed to, which also causes us to wonder, is God really in control? When we talk, uh, or when theologians talk about sin, they usually talk about two aspects of sin. They talk about its guilt and they talk about its pollution. And, and guilt we might be more familiar with uh, is a judicial and legal concept with regards to one's relationship with the law. So, for example, you stole a car, you are now guilty and under the penalty of that law, right? That is the guilt of sin. It doesn't mean that you necessarily feel guilty, although I hope you do. It means that you are guilty, right? Very, very different uh, and, and, and important distinction. But pollution, however, speaks more to the moral nature of someone because of sin, right? So it's just not that I'm now under this law that uh, has found me guilty. There's something going on here that it's polluted the way in, that I think, how I live, what I do. It's might be think about it as sin's effects, its consequences. There's the moral inability then and desire uh, to obey God, which is lost. What we mean by the pollution of sin, uh, but also the moral inability to think of others instead of yourself. Sin bends us inwards. In this way, sin, is con sin has consequences that affect others and ourselves. Like, for example, I might decide to go 120 miles an hour down the interstate just because I want to. 
right? And that could be a really selfish thing to do. But then I could get in an accident and injure five other cars or five other people and kill two. I mean, just you can think about the rest of what could happen there in the process. This would fit under the pollution of sin. I'm not operating the way I should, and it's causing problems around me. The world is not working now as it should. Augustine called the pollution of sin both the daughter and the mother of sin. This pollution is what leads to a world that doesn't work as it should, and we often refer to this as the brokenness of the world, sort of a catch-all of these things, right? And we all know about the brokenness of the world, right? We know that we, we get toys on Christmas Day, and we're, we're, done, we're done with them by February, perhaps. Or they just wear out, right? Riverbeds dry up. The daggum ice cream machine at McDonald's is not working again. And that will not happen in the new heavens and new earth. I promise you. But for sure, our bodies don't function as they should. They succumb to cancer and broken bones. They bruise and easily stop working altogether. And this brokenness, this pollution from sin, is not just in the world out there. It's in the church here. Christianity Today ran an article titled, This is the Southern Baptist Apocalypse. And this was written by Southern Baptist Dr. Russell Moore, and I commend him for writing this. Uh, but he's referring to the investigation that has been going on in the Baptist church for some time to determine if domestic and sexual abuse is or has been a problem. And I'm thankful for what he was able to say right from the get-go, and this, he writes these words, the abuse investigation has uncovered more evil than even I imagined. And look, I'm not beating up on the Baptist church here. It's, it's in here too. It's in the PCA. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's in all churches where humans live. I will say, interesting enough, at the same time this week, the PCA dropped its 220-page ad interim study report on domestic abuse and sexual assault. This was a committee formed last year to study uh, in response to much uh, abuse allegations going on outside the church, but also inside the church. And in this report, it, it, it quotes scripture and it guides us uh, with definitions of abuse and it gives us categories as, 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 as a people to think about this. And it also gives us wonderful steps uh, for the church to take to prevent abuse. Uh, congratulations, we all have summer reading now in 220 pages of this report. I would commend this to you. I can promise you your session will be reading this. Because, for example, it encourages churches to put together their own task force made up of men and women to read the report and come up with ways to educate the church and recommend procedures to the church that they can both take to identify abuse and to have a protocol for how church handles it. This is good. But it forces me to ask, why do we need a task force on domestic and sexual abuse in the church in the first place? Whether you want to admit it or not, we live in a very broken world that doesn't work as it should yet. And it's a world where Christians are called, though, to push back against the effects of sin in this world as Jesus reigns. That's going on mission. But that is hard work. And at times, it's hard to tell if God's kingdom is pushing back on the brokenness of this world or if the world is pushing back on God's kingdom rule. 
And this is what we actually see in the office of king for David by the end of his life and all throughout the higher ranks here in this kingdom, yet, yet, yet God's kingdom moves forward by his mercy and grace. His kingdom moves forward in spite of the brokenness of this world. First, let me just say some really nice things about David because I know it sounds like I'm piling up on him. There, there's some really, really good stuff that happens to him at the end of his life. Unfortunately, little of it has to do with him as king. The most important, for sure, though, is his relationship with God. And if you read 2 Samuel 22, as we kind of trying to do an overview of the rest of 2 Samuel as we get to 1 Kings, right? It's essentially Psalm 18. Here we see a level, though, of intimacy and trust that David has recovered in, in one sense after the Absalom account and everything else. David is adoring God here. David is praising God. He is all in. As one pastor writes, the largest part of life for David was God. This here towards the end of his life. I can only pray that this is said of my own life after I am gone. High note, perhaps the highest of David's life for sure. Which if you're again asking, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? You can be a failure in profession, but you can be, and that might be strong for, for David at this point, but, but you can be all in on who God, enamored with him. That's what he wants more than anything else. Like I said, though, that's David as a sinner saved by grace. David as a king, though, that's another story. And as we come into 1 Kings, we are immediately met with the chaos surrounding David's kingdom with another son trying to usurp the kingdom. This time it's Adonijah. At the same time, there's much deception among those closest to David throughout his life, causing dysfunction and chaos in Israel as a whole, as the kingdom seems to be, for lack of a better phrase, out of control, wondering who will be king. And that primarily falls on David. He's responsible for this. Almost nothing is working as it should, and David's final days, put short, he is not ruling well yet, Yet, even in the midst of that mess and brokenness, God's plans are never thwarted, and his kingdom moves forward. Don't miss that. And we see this in David naming Solomon as king there in verse 32 to 37. This arguably is the final true kingly act that David fulfills before his death. And the king David said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. David's last true kingly act, for sure. And even though it only comes about by some plotting on behalf of Bathsheba and Nathan, right, we have to remember that just as God enters the conditions of a world our sin brings about, he also chooses to work through the chaos and dysfunction, or as, as I'm naming it, the pollution that our sin causes for his purposes. And I'm just going to be honest it's not the way that I would do things. 
I don't know if you felt the same, right? I would destroy everything and I would start over. None of y'all would be here. I would be here, but none of y'all would be here. I would start over. And see, you just learned something about me, didn't you? I'm not that patient or kind, but God is. God is. And he's, he, he is patient and kind in ways that we can't really fathom. He will work through the brokenness of this world instead of starting over because that's how much he loves this world. That's how much he loves this creation. And that has huge implications for the church, mind you, but this is how much he loves David. But it's also a testimony of how much he loves you this morning. God hasn't changed the way he works. He still works through the brokenness of this world and our lives to bring about his purposes. In fact, that's all he does until he calls us to glory or he returns. And what the David story shows us is just as God uses and works through dysfunctional kingdoms and kings for their purposes, today he chooses to work through the church that doesn't really know how to be the church. He's doing it now. I wish he'd snap his fingers and all of this would be over and we'd be in glory and everything would be perfect, but that's not how he's choosing to work. And I've got to submit to that. And if you're a Christian this morning, you've got to submit to that too. But one of the reasons he does this, I'll give you two. One, mercy. He doesn't snap his fingers and we're all in glory because of mercy. What do you, what do you mean, Ryan? He's still giving time for people to confess that he is Lord. To submit to his kingship. But second, relationally, God longs for us to know him in the brokenness of this world. Because that's one way we know who he is. He is a man of sorrows. He longs for David and Israel to trust him as everything seems like a house of cards. Because newsflash, it is a house of cards anytime it's under our rule. Anytime we're the ones who think we're in charge. But not the Lord. Right? Better yet, he calls us, his church, to do the work of uncovering the beauty and the brokenness, as it were, as we push back against the effects of sin, as a testimony to his reigning as our king, as a testimony to his control over all things, and certainly as a testimony to him bringing redemption to this world. In short, it is a testimony of how his kingdom moves forward in spite of the brokenness we experience and cause. And the call for Israel in this text, as it is for us this morning, is will we trust him amongst this brokenness uh, that leaves us feeling out of control and no longer in charge? I don't have answers for the things that happened this week. I don't. I have tears. Right? I'm assuming you're the same. One of the best ways, though, God uses our sin and its effects is to what? Buck us off our own thrones. By driving us to our knees in sheer dependence upon him. Has that been a consideration for you where the Lord has you at this point in your life? Like maybe you find yourself fighting and fighting and fighting to make things right. And he's trying to get you to say, there's nothing, no one that can make this right but me. Will you trust that? Will you get off that throne and submit yourself to my kingship? 
the, even that kind of brokenness, that corruption that's in our own hearts, that still that desire that, that captured Adam and Eve's hearts in the garden, it's still here. We want to be our own kings. But Solomon's coronation, it's pointing the way to the promise that even that, right, that sin and brokenness will not stop God's kingdom from moving on and certainly being established. And this is what gets the final word in the David story, and it's the final word I want you to leave here with. Verse 10, David dies. And what do we read in verse 12? So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. The rest of chapter 2 will use the word established four more times, twice to end the chapter, saying, But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. What we don't hear is something like this. Then David slept with his fathers and all humanity in the world was ruined forever. That's not my Bible. We don't hear, then David died and there was no longer any hope for the world. No, instead we read the opposite of chaos. The opposite of confusion and uncertainty. We hear, and the kingdom was firmly established for ever. And this in spite of David's and Israel's sin and the brokenness it creates. And why? Because nothing, nothing stops God's kingdom from moving forward. But ultimately, what this points us to is, and, and why we can say that is because there is a better king than David coming as we turn to Solomon's coronation. He won't be the last one. And even as Israel gets messier and messier and messier, there will be a remnant that will win out, that will bring us this one better than David. And that is King Jesus. You might think I'm strange here. I'm a little, I, I really love these parts of Scripture as you go through the Old Testament that record the deaths of our heroes of the faith, as they're called. Go back and read through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, right? Because as you read these accounts of their death, and you get, like, they're such prominent characters in the story of God. And you're just expecting so much, right? They died, and you're like, man, let's talk about him for a little bit. Let's eulogize this man. But you get like two sentences, don't you? He died. Israel wept, turn the page, and then so-and-so shows up, full of wisdom in the Spirit of the Lord, right? The story just keeps going. You expect more, but then it hits you, oh, that's right, the story's not about Abraham. Oh, the story's not about Moses. Oh, the story is not about David. And it's not going to be about Solomon. It's about the name of our Lord Jesus being made great. It's about the kingdom moving in and moving forward. It's about his reign coming into this world and the line of David and doing what David could never do as king. And I think that's enough for us to gaze upon this table to see the lengths of which he moved into this world into these conditions to promise you not only his love for you, but to promise that his kingdom's coming. His kingdom is here. 
Nothing's changing that. You testify to that every time you partake of this meal. And so if there is one place of application, and I'm I'm just going to cut a lot of this because we're out of time. If there's one place of application as we we end here, if if Jesus truly is king, which he is, then there's a call for us to submit our lives to him. As a matter of fact, that's that's exactly what it means. I, I loved some of the reading in this chapter as Adonijah finds out that Solomon has been crowned king, and it's not him anymore. You read a verse like this, verse 49, then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And I think, I think that's an pertinent spot for us to end here. Jesus as king, he is the reason why God's kingdom will move forward, why it is established, and, and why, why it will never be defeated by your sin or the brokenness of this world. Know that. But it also means we have to make a decision too. As to what king or kingdom we will submit to. And I would argue that in this transition from David to Solomon, right, gives us a picture of, of, of that decision. But it's not a decision of going to a dictator. It's a decision that we are submitting to a king who loves us enough to, to enter the conditions of this world the messiness that our sin and brokenness creates, and what to, to get it on himself. To have it take him down on a cross, but then to be raised in victory because he is the better king than David. He is the one who obeys perfectly. He is the one who rules righteously. And he is the only one that we can go to to truly rest in times when all that is going on around us seems to be winning out. Let us go to him now and be reminded of that. Let us feed on that as his people, knowing for certain that God's kingdom is and will be established forever in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ability to look at the life of one of your faithful servants and to be encouraged in a strange way, in his own death, as we think about what that means for your promises at large, that your story continues. And even though that there is chaos and dysfunction circling one of your beloved servants, you are the one who's in charge. And I pray that we would rest there this morning with whatever is happening. And for those that are here who are hearing this and perhaps haven't made a decision to submit to this king, the true king, would you call them to that? Would you show them what that means? Would this table be a taste of that too? Showing us all the grace and the mercy that you long to show those who come under your kingship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.